Hi everyone, welcome. Uh, welcome to the writing series. Uh, thanks to Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities and to the Visual Arts Department for this use of space. Um, we have, uh, say this is going to be a fantastic reading today, and um, I'm so excited to hear both of you, uh, and I'm also excited to hear two of our MFA uh, students introducing. Uh, I think that the way we'll We'll roll with that. Is Ethan uh, will be introducing Ken White, uh, and then April will be introducing Kita, and that'll just be kind of the way we, we do it. Uh, we'll also have a short question and answer session at the end. So um, think about what you'd like to ask these writers who are in each other's presence uh, and are here today. Uh, and travel a long ways to be us. So. Um, Ethan. <laughs> uh, hello, my name is Ethan Sparks, and I have the distinct privilege to introduce one of today's writers, or maybe I should say introduce a crowd, or rather an opera company, and can write. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, one of the books he has for sale, which uh, I think is a uh, Wonderful book. Um, but it has to do with this, this uh, thing called an Eidolon. Uh, uh, so the tradition of invoking Eidolons within writing um, really isn't in itself a, a subject worthy of dissertation. Uh, it literally means apparition. One normally finds it in classical Greek literature involving ghosts or phantoms, and it's certainly prevalent in Shakespeare's Scottish play and Hamlet, in stories that involve guilt manifesting as ephemeral bodies. Uh, women even explore the term through different lenses. Um, and since I don't want to take away the words of this writer, I'll quote what he said. I met a seer, passing the hues and objects of the world, the fields of art and learning, pleasure, sense, to clean halons. But in I can't, said he, no more the puzzling hour nor day nor segments parts put in, put first before the rest is light for all and the entrance song of all that of halons. Ever the dim beginning, ever the growth, the rounding of the circle, ever the summit and emerge at last, to surely start again, Avalons, Avalons, ever the mutable, ever materials changing, crumbling, recohering, even the ateliers, the factories of divine, issuing Avalons. Lo, I, or you, or man, woman, or states, known or unknown, we seeming solid wealth, strength, beauty build, but really build Avalons. The offset, ever nascent, the substance of an artist's mood or savant studies long, or warriors, martyrs, heroes, spoils, to fashion his Avalon. Of every human life, the units gathered, posted, not a thought, emotion deep, but thou, the whole or large or some, some to add up in its Avalon. A woman makes a case for all of our deeds, past and future, coalescing into a personal divine apparition in its collectivity as a social consciousness. But what if the term were used as a verb? To alienate. What if we were to look at the term as a con conjuring of apparitions, maybe accidentally, maybe with purpose, with intent? Did I not just conjure Walt for you? Is he not present now with us? There's another worldly aspect in writing explored by many, but maybe embodied by few. Ken White's work explores these manifestations while asking the reader to conjure for themselves. In his collection of poetry entitled Avalon, published in 2013, White's fragmented syntax and form Collective voices as one man opera, and haunting need to understand the collection as a performance operates a paradox to the reader, requiring a listening of oneself rather than a simple reading. Ken's work embodies the best of adaptation, whether it is for a novel to screen, as in James Welch's Winter in the Blood, a truly beautiful film that pays homage to the power of understanding one's own origins, or even Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, a story that configures intense emotion as expression of uh, subjectivities. His interpretation of his works leaves the audience assembling their own divine apparitions. Ken's work spans stage and screen. He teaches for the MFA program at the Institute for American Indian Arts. His current project is a screen adaption of Deborah Erling's novel, Perma Red, which he is attached to direct. He has written or co-written eight feature scripts, including Blight and The Wear Man, the medieval Irish epic, The Cavalry of Cooley. His poetry has appeared in the Boston Review, the Tuscan Review, Columbia, Journal of Literature and Art, Versal and the Manor House Quarterly, among others. 
It is my great pleasure to introduce this poet as apparition, as source of inspiration, as Whitman's orbic tendency to shape and shape and shape. Please join me in alienating and trapped there 
it's, no, it's really exactly the same thing with that, the Greek legatory, with this funeral vessel, um, the beloved opposed to the, to the other on, on the vessel, and then with the, the, the spirit double rising above. Well, what if someone was just trapped in stone or in a tree or in any of the various versions of that myth, and then um, that other person is also trapped there in this life and never, never ended? <clears throat> so this is from a uh, new work called The Glass Hour. Infidels of my tiny afterlife, have pity on us. No means, no choice, but trust. Have pity on we who, despite resistance, memory carries where it will, lightly across the crust. Of course, feet yield the runaway world slipping past. No body attached. Half dozen fine gray deceits seem beyond all the deepest fissures. Though each engineer's fronted loss so terribly, I cannot help but laugh. Who hears it through this buffer ring, loafer sloping at the heel, strange fire before the Lord, this after-hours messenger, between villages, branching ram's horn ten speed, as if for the first time I tried to muster sufficient nerve, hard, modern veneer, veneer. this gold pen, this gold leaf spyglass, this drowning finally. At first, unholy sinus pressure, as if long crying jag, or amnesiac, as if rising through diverse fibers, deep water, layers crenellated with scar, so frequently divided, so much I thought I'd shed, backstage, on screen, waiting in the wings as usual, devilated navigator, delivers waltzes, brisk quadrilles, misdirections, we drilled in pastures with such haste, glass tower, hawthorn cask, den of prisons, marble sept, I've read all the versions clapped unkempt in iron's unruly hedge. Now books moth wing disintegrate under fingers. Feigned terminus, only I attended, you still rest. Let mosses muffle all crumbled terraces, granite stairs. Forget numbers as you did the stars. Let them be small like years. Disney voted me boss princess for all history in different courses. No take-backs. <laughs> Relax, check my absurd lemniscate, falling all over the panoramic eye, revises what it can't encompass. You were a slight boy, despite abundant gifts, dowsing, marbles, cowlicks, the uncanny, refracted prophecy, always envied axe-handled shoulders, capable waist. Girl like me, place like this, irresistible. Thus, get thee behind me, tender dumpling. Fine old man, none left but I espouse you, since sentient vanguard, divine, i.e. your convergent dooms conducted, due diligence, employed some rude sextant, cross-referenced, sibylline emoticon, sussed from morning's entrails. I pretend very well, I mean a thing, news I don't, unless you catch me sneak. Anyway, that number's long defunct, ask someone who knows, someone who knows, my private dark, I threw it, sealed quite literally the quick other. My position so well practiced over many seasons. Innumerable once young men now outlasted, for instance bent closer. Regard this cupped hands, clear pool surface leaning up. See how in cloudless reflection each year's wooden cudgel hovers above our closed old fontanelles. know why I imagine her as being so sassy as she is. Lay me down, said Sino, for yon silver slipper. These are fake hours we imagine most boys know. The times they clutches me, the times they can't touch. The voice what makes yon known, unknown, for kids like us. That's my fun voice, the one put on in crowds. Every time I try, there's no resisting this current, splendid, uncanny demo-victory achieved at large in the teeth of the enemy. Some flash bone lodged slant, each throat nursed, little murmurs for that body of the eight moans, and such aching somehow as it endured. What I loved best served me least, convinced me, please, with something shiny. Acute acrobatics over grand forum delivered tribute and calibrated fragrances that I might be moved 
the marvelous clemency, though as if filled with lively pupae, some horn-nosed, ravenous, runnel-born thing remains. Who am I to assume various faces of forgotten human hindrances to electrical field? Stop, bright recall of the Adriatic, the Adriatic, a bygone span today, poolside, inebriate at the Roosevelt, this gleaming brown young thing, rank with coconut. I want to can with you so hard, though well past board with same poses. Example, failing light socket in high wind pose. Also the pose, elephant palm defrocked by steam, then needle of the sky pose in which you lean through ingress of the needle so abruptly when I breathe I forget all about the mirror, easily recognized by certain inflorescence, candidly returned mirror, lies a little right to my faces, amuses me to play pretty make-believes in many dyed leathers, reveal secret leave-in detangler, won't leave oak leaves, feeling weighed down by industrial residues after only one lousy day breezes. What I've done, quick, somebody kiss me, for starters. No more tongue than massive book heaps, still unread, shelved than unshelved box, or better yet, scoured salvage yards for themes. Once desire leaves, all else feels a bit flat, less necessary. Everything recedes toward one form among many reproductions produced ad nauseum. Even faux Viennese lead-based laminates above the nave, lifeless purpled manganese until some final sun illuminates the lie, headside emissions. Really, what has time been since but pressing my mouth against the stain between us, heavily transformed by hideous honesty from exile, all the old ills return. Let's get back into the book. fiction, arcade token, now a ship in air. As she fleeth before, how fainting he follows, dribbling in his briefs, how twisted Hackney's hindright cannon, horse quite maimed beyond repair. How waffle cone, now nostril tusk, drools gelato, sticky novel on blank sidewalk. How emperor penguins canary muffs. How fine the strain, so fair the trim, how we fled that white hot horse. Its blue hot tassels, how scorched him then, his skin. Magnetized with promises, whoso list to hunt, he knows and surpassingly fine cue of first class fleeces on the hoof. How fox gold, how damp the thatch, how laced and hobbled to the shoot, how sheaves he murdered, how freeze brand scabs, how mint bright sea of minty tags, now cloying gusts of styptic, how before the sickle off ransomed. Dandy limps and leans, now kneels, eyes down, now slips. So I'm going to finish with a couple more from the long sequence. And <coughs> one um, medium-sized poem that I just really like to read because it makes me feel a little bit like makes me feel a little bit like Mickey Mouse and Fantasia with all the brooms and, the, and the, the water and the animation. <coughs> but first, a few more from the sequence. <coughs> Forever sophomore diaries, everywhere maligny, precocious minx, deceitful, as with most things, the text twists it. You commanded, then begged, when I refused, as always, this palsied lung conniption mimics breathing, it's endless. Still, collusion illustrates how difficult to find myself in residence. What if you peel back this barrier, kindled a simple heart beneath unblinking canopies, countless pyres? I wish you would. You knew me well. Somehow I wouldn't mind Christ. Get a load of this 
crybaby, I tired myself, gag on shtick, troop his, went down to final charm, as cleft ground shut and clicked, I only bummed the words. Souped up gastro trucks cruise like hammerheads, suspended between world's dulled pop-up. What did new versions become beside other perforated versions of themselves? Ever darker asphalt varnishes unnamed parking lot dioramas. Husband, take as tithe specialty condiments to spoil Hungarian horde contraband ornaments. Listen, sweetling, without argument, I spot pure units descending in Tetris snowflake sequences. How infrequently, when I wish for a scissors, is there a scissors near at hand? You, me, I and thou there. I said it, and I'm not even kidding, like I do sometimes. That joke about drowning the lamb down the well. Wings sprouted, fluttered marvelously, failed the one I told to make you weep until you laughed. How I loved you laugh. It ached so much after that. Who is there now in whom I might confide this side-splitting riot? It's a doused pearl shat by the moon, then abandoned. Your uncut beard all night thrown across my throat. Pulse, the punchline, killed us. You know the one. You think you were scared. I had to walk out of there alone. Just a couple more numb minutes. Keep direct pressure, form tight seal over so long since. Just give me one hidden slip, one extra vial, too many. Never mind that the maths don't add up. It doesn't matter. Everywhere bent clones, eye check, blue lit tabletops. I'm done holding forth so long, so gone, so never leaving me no matter what. I'm so perplexed, also subject to chemicals, something lasting less, less now than a hundred whatevs. Ask geology, it never blinks. Ask at the gallows, so too much tired to cable, blah, blah, trick with tripped up speeches, blah. The great blah loves, the record skips. Ask the needle, ask the plagues, ask so many solo sailors, sailing blazers of red sateen. Lies again, lies, I cleave, I care. Though advertised baddest sister, as proof recalled the chain of hallowed damazel shaped weed, Begs my body made under mountain when I lay as one interred with your green ghost. Green shoots knit through nude gray clutch of moldering rabbit kits. Green shadow silvers over silver hard skin. How sometime palest bark of you momentarily became whatever touched it. And then the last of the sequence. Top flanked go-go baby off my lap for good, despite no names the way I like it. No names, only faded canvas cocked at back of the invisible prison, I confess, to the invisible person. Then we laugh, like it's New Year's Eve, like some jeweled ball drops, which it does. Whatever that means, as years in queue outside, gnaw velvet rope. I don't live here all the time. Mostly I live on another planet, I almost wrote Uphill sheep herder, anteater priest murder, because that's the language we speak among dear most loved ones on our planet. We don't use bodies all the time, or even much, far too tedious. Let us promptly veer into lanes on coming as a joke, kind of. Imagine how charming that last note really is what keeps me going. Curiosity. I still don't get, can't get it, it can't be long, now God, I can't wait long, I really hope it comes to none. All right, this is the final poem. Thank you again for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your attention. Um, there are so many other ways in which we can be spending our lives, and you've chosen to come here. Thank you. <laughs> Though our mouths be taken from us. Though our mouths be taken from us, the center comes first. Circumference follows. That shall be the whole of the law. Listen, glass blower. Listen, pendulum. Though our faces have been smoothed of feature and our ears stopped fast, we have these our hands, though sense of touch, touch has forsaken this inforeseeable collapse. If not hands, we have these our remnant stumps. Listen, cornflower. Listen, saffron. Though tongues swell thick as roots have died, 
Though our skins outmake their tiny orders of integument and release, though the centrifuge, though spin drift our blood this suspended sheet, we cannot hope to overcome it wholly. We must meet with lust for bruises, the whole of the bristling wall, the hemoth and the jagged breach. Listen, low and leaded. Listen well, bivalve hinge. Let us shatter on the charge. Let us fragment and combine to let our craft by cuspids mark the crater and the sky. Though the whole of the law shall be unwritten, we must speak our remnant tendons, bunched and flat and dried. Our sinews must cluster like rushes on the marsh, and in the slightest stir of wind must whisper milk the whole of it, enchant it where they touch. Choir it, ringing from our lashes, smoldering and singed, though raised. Though iron smacks louder than pulse, we must listen, sower, listen, reaver. Though hammer flattens, folded and damasked, we must listen, basin, listen, friends, and speak it. Though all has been dismembered, and our stolen mouths, our molecules summarily dismissed, capillaries driven over cliffs, cells ruptured with borrowed pin, atoms heedlessly compressed until the fabric of our bodies, our voices which have no bodies, has been unraveled, and still we must speak it aloud, speak it together or in part. Our mouths have been taken from us. Listen, Bozen, listen, Tirsel. As frighted hairs, our tongues have gone to ground. Root them out, the banished and remiss. We must speak. Listen, direction. Listen, comfort. We must speak. We must speak. We must, because everything can be. Everything that can be taken from us will be taken from us. Speak for it. This law is the only law. That the voice must live. That the voice must live shall be the whole of it. At the center is the voice and will be invented next circumference. Though there is no... Sorry, will be invented next circumference and all will be restored to us. Though there is no promise as to the form of it. That is the body of thee. The corpus of thee. The only of the law that this voice must live and that we speak it the imperative entire, the floor of thee, the seat of thee, the voice, the heart, and ember in a chamber at the center of the only law that matters, that we must speak it aloud to make it whole. Thank you. Um, 
The poems in Underbloom are alluring and funny, but they're never coy. They're not shy. They can't always give you what they promise, um, but that's intentional. Uh, you can't go there. Um, the writing is brave. It is personal. It is bold in how it addresses culture and race, personal story, identity, lyricism, and also academia. It goes there. Uh, it goes there uh, and somehow it does all this without being authoritative, without being instructive. You're in a relationship with the text and the words on the page, and somehow it always feels fresh and intimate. You never lose that sense of bravery. As you read it, you have to be brave too. Um, and what I would like to say is that it inhabits such a complicated space. And I think it does that because the Gita Sharma knows how complicated the space is between bodies and race and complicated space. And is able to translate that beautifully, hauntingly, funnily sometimes onto the page as you read it. Um, for me, reading Underglam was a descent into lostness and a descent into otherness. And I would like to share with you um, one of the lines, one of Sharma's lines that stays with me. It is others who did this to me. Did I tell you I was becoming one of them? And uh, that thorn that haunts me. Uh, so on that note, I would like to introduce the
I'm only inside of reports and evaluations and things from which I stick out. I think about when I and other brown and black people get profiled in airports and in stores, on paper, professionals or educators portrayed as outsiders. It makes me ill just thinking about it, and when I write about it, I'm not sure I'm doing anything new or revolutionary, except just thinking out loud on paper. We have enough flattering verse full of data. I'm not sure how I enforce data in the paper, in the, in the poem, except to explore its material sense on the page, to place inside the poem the outside experiences, not the ones where I'm magnificent. To many poets, too many poets love their magnificence. Perhaps they claim words as objects for a kind of ownership of feeling. This is what frightens me. I do it too, but I don't feel like it's always authentic. So you can laugh too, because I'm, I'm also making fun of myself. So <laughs> grateful, having the desire or reason to thank somebody. Your poetry about outsider—sorry, your poetry about outsiderness, too outside the outlining norms. It made you look ungrateful. Erosion of integrated feelings, a breakdown of the soft side, like bad cheap bread. You could tell. People thought they ordered a baguette, but they got you. Bad cheap bread, dressed with bad dressings, trying to taste good. Of the towardness you yearn for as though it were inclusion, towardness replaced with something, not a collective, revolutionary, subjective empathy, no descriptive, abject space to share with others, the way you did in your urban environment the way you used to follow and share abject feelings with others with a kind of careful and mindful allegiance, if this is even possible. And now you become the descriptive, abject, abject space, and you're horrified. On top of that, you find that everyone claims to be a Marxist when really they're astonished constellations of teetering materialists. <laughs> so when you are a glaring materialist with inner Marxist tendencies, you may appear tacky. But you're the outward of everyone's inward. It's all the same. There are attempts to stick you with a bill, to pat you with a so-so brush-off. Or you think everyone is a modernist, flashing the collective rejection of individual heroes, or limiting the play between subject and object to offerings of a specific alien play, tending to the tiny, residual, personal fires or shocks to the system. However, you're no fool. You realize all this very young. What t-shirt must you wear to convince them of this? A recess for adults leads to more shameless bullying and an articulation of disclusion. The patent expires on your wares. <coughs> you're interested in a new contemporary musical scene. make up a word here. It's it's not duly noted. It's dully noted. <laughs> Poem for Lee Hunt. I find ways to keep a sense of peace, but it is not always easy. For example, I can't keep my questions tempered. What kind of sun expounds its rays upon the hills, but then mutes like an ordinary bulb? small and self-contained. Moreover, what moon filters the blistering whiteness of snow so that it can only enamor the fiscally immune, the dully noted? Let me amble with Keats and his wandering expression and try to figure out if the poem keeps me encased in a rapture for which my dim external life won't account. So this was, this was sort of a little critique on figurative language and poems about place in, in the West. <laughs> and particularly, I think, traditions 
old programs. I think I'm going to return to the old programs in, in these newer poems. Um, uh, so, but I was trying to, to also explore. I'm actually going to stop trying to explain this. <laughs> Glenda glistens. Glenda glistens with a peptic sour formed from hollow gladiolas and wrench-shaped lilacs. Why did they come for her? It's because nobody for miles can outperform her in self-mythologizing. Lord Krishna himself fails. He burdens the metaphor with his ungainly blueness. But can anyone absorb the scale of her platitudes capsizing, especially in foreign hands? She can't be left alone like this, without her harp, without her thistle, without her myrtle tree's ignitions. I fathom she will say that life's real heart world is too rich in hue for a trope. She will have to transform yet another corpse's dander and spin life's poisons and spells into poetry's capricious acquisitions. I think it's really that sometimes there's so much possession of figurative language <laughs> that you own the place if you can describe it. Um, so I have some new poems. I don't know what I'm doing with these yet. Um, and some that didn't make it into books, so they're actually not so new. So I wrote a poem in Underbloom that um, that was about my dad, and I, I'm not going to read it. But he wrote, he he called me up one day, or he texted me, and he's like, "Can't you just write another one? Like I'm fine now." <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but I was like, "Oh, it's not the movies. It's not a sequel." <laughs> but, um, I was reading that um, Black Swans, that Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, book and he uses the phrase um, cheap signaling, which actually, I know Daniel Tiffany was here, was it last week or two weeks ago? Um, anyway, he's been, he and I have been talking about the, 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 this term cheap signaling. And, and it's from, it says, I'm just going to just read this quote It is one thing to be cosmetically defiant of authority by wearing unconventional clothes, what social scientists and Economists called cheap signaling, and, and another he writes to prove willingness to translate belief into action. And I just thought about poems like when do we cheap signal? Like when does it feel like a cheap signal? And when do we think we're doing something? So I was trying to look at un under bloom and figure out what was easy and what was hard. So I wrote a poem. It's indulgent. I wrote it af after the book for myself to figure out what it meant to me. One, in poems from her book, she did not want to import a code of signals that took her father's voice solely for her imperatives in which they appeared as grenades, taglines, or hashtags. And however, she declares Missoula as a Western town, a city in which she struggles to belong, its wilderness of towering, the sighted and yet spindly pines with their melancholia points of dry brush and iron-designed trunks alongside ruined bridges drowned in solid ice. She realized she was losing people who quietly judged, or not so quietly, and who believed too solidly in their false benevolence, candy nurses, and their do-good harm. Yet she learned how to deliberate under a sky big enough Two, now her family is far from distress, in a saddle of their own inheritance, immersion into a wholesome exultation, everything light and interconnected. What made her father's otherness a painful recognition also made him a star witness to the truth of his own becoming, to his faithful and long-buried Hindu self, a now emotive force, far from untoward and epistemic arrogance hidden in the language of authorial tumult. She moved from the confession to narration in order to construct an affective irregularity so she could reckon with the affable truth of black swans and feelings of too many white ones 
and the torpor resting in their probability. This is right again. I'll move from aggressive to pleasant. <laughs> A legacy. All this noisy commotion isolated a fairly small universe of nothing special. I faced the assistant to the incumbent, his failed face of poetry bottomless with self-pride and a satisfaction that fed his wolf. And he was a wolf, and when I scoffed at him with some penetration, I could see the clamor of his wounds, but also the vanity of his recognitions. He believed I was undeserving and thought his right to judge. And his judgment, a stun gun, took my gender and race and euthanized its center. And he thought this was an extension of the occult, that it was the intuition of a bright star affecting forward. I wanted him to see this in a particular light, but the particular worsened into a bruise of matter far more inhumane. And I fell into its hole, and he, with his glee, had no idea, because his gender and race gave him the privilege to look down and see how my skeleton warped my will, but not the firmament of my broadness and what I know now as measuring across power and enduring many luminary deficits that come out of symptoms and their fallen edges. My nature poem. Started with grass-shaped sickles that stuck out of planks, growing under the blood rust deck next to the house. The air is still blue, and its mystery can fill my poem with the sure density of balsa, its pollen film looming above my head. I love my natural world, even when I don't travel far into the thick earth of it. It has its own pushpins that grab me and stick me to its fabric. Its self-containment suggests that it still can be everywhere, no matter how it's regarded. Move back to the gloominess. Why I stopped writing poetry. You know you want to write, you just do write that, I know. Okay. It was because my shoulders hung lower than my fat calves, and my girth ballooned from the interior stasis, the dreading ahead. Because I was uncomfortable in my sadness, and thought, how will poetry help me? Was it that my pens did ink and blight? Their points felt like obtuse falcons circling around fear. They were of no value, as was the keyboard. It felt like mildew in the failed bathroom of my brain, because when I finished a sentence, my heart gave in to a milky pain that soaked my blouse. And I kept diagnosing myself with more problems. I didn't want to feel melodramatic anymore, but was. I didn't want to keep confessing, but my poetry was already advertising my problems. I would forever be a victim. I didn't want to feel the darkness I sat in day and day out. I didn't trust my friends and their friends. I thought the phone would hand me ideas, but no, just the internet and text messages from my brother who was in more pain and had more terror and was certifiably mute from it. I had such admirable mentors too, writing and translating and presenting poems. What had made me fail? It's the incalculable way I felt demoralized, especially when the gray, starry days offered me the best evenings of flight with my beloved. We would talk and drink the nights away, relishing in what felt like finished nights by the side of an autobiographical mountain. We toast with thin stems, knowing we lived here because we find what we want. It's kind of sweet, our shoulders hunched with poetry falling forward and mass. We can find couplets bearing much more winter than winter new. A stream of rain full of rightly specters, full of the kind of sins that anchor more of you to everyone, and everyone can decide someday that they love you as much as you love them. 
You love them right now in all the darkness you all carried around, even in the high points, in the bounty that suffering leaves behind, when sentences finish off sentiments, drinking them up and sending the glass to its kin high above. It's where we were looking when we gave in to our moral fiber.
and what still can't be said now? Must it be through the improvisation that we find the substance and look at its ghost sightings and who wrote or shot film of whom and why? And why do I stand here feeling like it's all so hard to hold on to? Screenwriting in particular has informed the way I arrange broader scopes of things, and then um, I think that I think that poets actually have a pretty natural affinity for writing screenplays because of the economy and the spacing and the ability to uh, evoke worlds uh, from very little, which is the name of the game. It's like a, it's like you you would you would make a world like you know, like game Jenga, and you just keep yeah. pulling things out until you until the very last piece. If you take it out, the screenplay falls apart. That's when you've got the screenplay because then you're falling through it. Um, and then you, then you hope that it's just like the, the ritual of poetry, where you're writing something, you're hoping to invoke this greater, this greater thing. The same thing happens with the script, um, where it's just just a little bit. And when you're making a script, you're not making it for artists; you're making it for accountants. You're hoping to lure artists to the strong accountant of your script.
um, even if it's not overtly political, it's just having uh, the authority of uh, more than the eye. Uh, Ken, this question is just for you. I was talking to a poet the other day who was saying something about how many poets these days really love the vernacular and using that slang moment because like everybody hears the slang and immediately laughs. It's like, oh, this is the language that we know and so forth and uh -huh. so on. And I noticed that you know, you know, in your poems, you did that in a few places here and there, but in fact, mo much of the language didn't seem particularly vernacular at all. It was really sort of quite elegant and uh -huh. full of, of a variety of layers of artifice. And I wonder what you think about that relationship between like the moving back and forth between the elegant and the vernacular. Are you, are you aware of working with that and how do you, how do you Think about that. Um, I do most. I, I think of it as the high-low tango, and um, I I do it as a way to make fun of myself because, as you may know, or you may be able to suss, I I definitely like to go into this this hyvatic crazy town, um, which isn't necessarily <laughs> the most permeable. So for me, sometimes I make like at the very end, like the whole the crybaby, the shtick, that kind of thing in the new sequencing. Um, sometimes I'll I'll just punctuate it a little bit as a way to perforate. Perforate the sale of that elegance. See, I just did it again. It's like, um, exactly like that. Exactly like that. So I'm very aware of it. I try to do it, and I also try to build it in. But I also build it in just as I start to build in kind of soundscapes where similar shapes of sound will kind of fall through the poem. For me, it's just kind of part of my private coding. I'll also code those in as kind of references, like little neon references, just for me. Can I just say something again? writing this piece on addiction and we talked about cheap signaling. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of you. Thanks. Thank you. Thinking of your addiction. Uh, he's trying to, he, in this essay he's talking about like addiction is now going to try to take on what had historically been different moves mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. so that in, in, in a sense you take addiction on. Thank you. That's actually, that makes me think of a better answer to the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is that I also embed those things in part of the cadence. There's kind of that, that um, I'll, I'll put it in what I, what I think of as kind of a medieval cadence, even though it really isn't, uh, or the full medieval cadence. I'll plug that in so that, it, that the momentum of that line will carry through the, the, the shtick of it or the, or the kitsch kind of term. As just, just a just thought, like I think of This one is actually for the pair of you. Um, so for you guys, your poems are very, I mean, they're not vernacular, but they sound like if there were two close friends speaking to each other and someone was just like spilling something out, it sounds very, very much like that. Whereas your poems are very fast-paced, so you present them are very fast-paced, very rhythmic and whatnot. And I was curious how that reflects what, how you guys think inside your own head. Do you guys think in, do you think in a rhythm? Are you essentially wrapping your own stream of consciousness with your tune or what? I think we do. Uh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fair. I mean, no, that, that was, that's, that's my most intimate, or in, intimate and kind of confessional. If I were to sit down and confess, to just spill it, it would probably sound something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it just gets more and more ridiculous. I feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, to, I, I do like thinking of form and performing form, and then that's not me, but, but maybe I'm trying to play with, I'm trying to just, um, revise it into something that's me. So yeah, I guess it feels like my voice. Yeah, <laughs> or a top conversation. One more question. <laughs> You're shy by yourself at home. I, I wouldn't read it. I wouldn't. I don't think I. Yeah, I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> but, but also, wonder, as you as you're reading it in your head, like not reading it out loud at home, I wonder if some of the pacing, or if you hear your own voice, or if you're feeling it in a different way that has to do with hearing it. I'm just curious. 
those would all be ways of preparing, I would think, but there's, even if you're not consciously preparing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's some way in which I want to deliver the poem. Um, my husband's a sound artist, and so he's recorded me, and yeah. then he said it, you know, and then he'll sometimes <laughs> tell me to do things that I won't do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he really loves downtown New York in the 80s, so um, he wants me to do something more more John Giorno than I could ever do. <laughs> I think he tries to make you do that, but you yeah. won't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Just the but I do, I always read them out loud because to me, it's, to me, my text is a dead text until I'm participating in it. Uh, and I and I also mostly around the house wear earphones like like ear, the bigger mugs. I I heard that recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that it does, in addition to kind of taking the sharp edges off of the shapes, uh, is um, is I can also feel it in the body when you're when I'm reading and intone it, and just with earplugs and with the with the mugs, I can feel the different sort of reverberation. And so the way I like to think about. Um, you know, taking the thing out, putting it on the page, and then taking it from the page and putting it back out, is that it um, it makes a frequency, and then when you're speaking it, you're, you're, we, we now have this frequency in which whatever we have said, or whatever, when you say that back, it lodges in the body and then it vibrates in this way, and then that changes, well, in my mind, it, that's why I'm not chemistry anymore, my sense doesn't work out, is that... Um, <laughs> is that then that vibration changes my chromosomes and now I'm forever altered by this language that, I, that I've taken in. And so I, I, I say it a lot. I say it out loud frequently. So then, then I have my own relationship with it. And does that also happen as you're writing? What do you Back mean? and forth? Well, like when it's not completed yet? Oh, throughout? I mean, sometimes yeah. that's a way to make yeah, it. For me, that I make yeah. discoveries by what happens in the body and then back out again. Yeah. to inform ways in which uh, I engage with language, and particularly um, relative to, to writing scripts. So I, I have, I have a, a, in terms of how things cross over, I have a much better understanding of how to get inside of a character if I know how I might approach it, or I know how an actor might have entered into the character. Then that influences one form of writing. But in terms of how influence, like poetry is my, for me, that's my selfish thing, that doesn't have to do with um, the acting element, and the rest is kind of the exterior commercial element for me. Yeah, no, Does that I, not address what you're talking about? Well, in a way, doesn't it naturally, don't you have an affinity for it to all come together because you have acted? I guess it's just a non-actor no. to an actor. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always, I mean, it's, it's always, I'm all, it's just all pretend. Like, this, this, any sort of exterior thing is just draining the battery at an accelerated rate. Um, so then going back into the thing, it invests okay. in the body, then puts it back. So I'm just pretending. I said it in the poem. I pretend very well, but I don't. What's in your hair? It's a hair clip. What's on? Oh, that's a hat. I think that's a perfect